2023 is moving right along. This is Greg from Asset Horizon, and today we have some great guests. We have Andrew Culp, who was one of the first guests that we had on Asset Horizon when we started back in 2020. We also have Alexander Galloway. They are both joining us to promote their new podcast on Alain Badiou's Being an Event. Before we begin today, I thought it was important to say that it's because of our patrons that we are able to continue as a podcast and bring on great guests like Andrew and Alexander. Your material support means so much to us. And what's more, this year, in a few months, we have our book, our first book coming out entitled Anti-Oculus, A Philosophy of Escape. As I understand it, the book is already available for pre-order in those places where you buy books online. You can also navigate to the Repeater Books website and wait for the book to drop there. And before you grab the book, perhaps you can navigate to the merch store, Crit Drip, or go to Repeater Books and grab the Philosopher's Tarot, which I created last year. Those make great graduation gifts for your friends and family who are in the humanities and who love philosophy and who love Acid Horizon. In any event, thank you for your support and thanks for listening today. So let's get to the conversation with Andrew and Alexander. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Deleuze is on spring break this week. So we decided to do some Badiou as a treat and highlight a podcast, a retrospective on Badiou's work, headed up some folks you might be familiar with. Today on the show, we have with us, and we're happy again to have, Andrew Kolb, author of some noteworthy texts you should add to your reading list if you haven't already, namely 2016's Dark Deleuze and more recently, The Gorilla Guide to Refusal, both of which we will link in the show notes. And if some of you remember, Andrew was with us on one of our very first episodes where we talked about his book, Dark Deleuze. We also have with us today Alexander Galloway, a scholar of media studies, game studies, and philosophy. Alexander has written Incomputable Play in Politics in the Long Digital Age and Laruel Against the Digital. And I'd heard that Alexander was a fan of the podcast, so that was exciting to hear if that is in fact a true statement. In any event, I want to thank both of you for coming on the show today. Hey, welcome. Great Great to be here. And so before we begin, I just want to give both of you a chance to give your own introduction and perhaps talk about some recent work and why did your focus shift to Badiou and why did you make this podcast? And I, and I suppose we'll start with Andrew. Oh, me. No, I'll, I'll throw it to Alex. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a, we could, we could both kind of maybe narrate the journey in different ways. I think, you know, Andrew and I both share something in common, which is, you know, our sort of like love for Deleuze and the way in which Deleuze has left a imprint on, on both of us. And I don't know, for me at a certain point, the question was sort of, you know, how far can we follow this path? And that's what led me to someone like Francois Laruelle, who sort of takes up a thread that's maybe more well-known in, in Deleuze, this thread around imminence, and, and takes that sort of all the way to the furthest extreme. And so that was a kind of, you know, excursion for me, looking beyond this, this, this Deleuzean training and background. And I guess the turn to Badiou, you know, is maybe... Um, just a kind of perverse, allowing the pendulum to swing back in the opposite direction. You know, they're, they're pretty different figures and in many ways they're pretty incompatible. 
Although in our reread of, of being an event, we found some unusual kind of connections between them that maybe we could get to. And so, yeah, it was a, 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 a way for me to sort of like return to maybe even a more classic metaphysical posture, posture, maybe a, a turn away from the ethical turn back to a more political, you know, posture within, within theory and philosophy. But yeah, I don't know, Andrew, what is your version of the story? Yeah, I love system builders, you know. While I have a deep, enduring interest in Deleuze, I think that he himself would even admit that one of the worst things in the world is to simply just become an acolyte and sort of let someone else's ideas or concepts simply speak through you. And so I've always picked up a lot of different approaches along the way. I love Bataille. I love a lot of French feminisms. I've, I've been doing a whole variety of sort of post-colonial thought, but in the sort of narrower sense of like French Marxisms. I think he's a really important figure. You know, he helps tie together the sort of Althusser generation with what's been going on more recently. And what's remarkable about him is he doesn't just go back to the old doxa of a party winning the state, you know, all these things. And so even if he's metaphysically a bit incompatible with Deleuze and DNG's thought, he gives us a sort of, I don't know, he's certainly not an anarchist, but as someone who's like pretty involved in anarchism. I think there's a lot of overlapping compatibilities that that I see with that. And there's been, you know, comparative work between Deleuze and Badiou before. And so I wanted to go read it myself to sort of figure out more of it and see where it would take us. Great. Yeah, I encountered this book in in a reading group through a socialist party years and years ago when it came out. And I actually had not been that involved with Deleuze yet. And it's interesting coming back to it Having, I actually read this before Anti-Oedipus, so it's interesting kind of coming back to it now. Being that it's such a comprehensive and, and difficult book, maybe we could talk a little bit about like what are some of the problems that Badiou is trying to reformulate in this text, not only epistemologically and politically, but how is the enterprise of philosophy itself reconsidered in this book? And maybe we'll start with Alex since you started first. Yeah, you know, he has this sort of startling and splashy way of beginning being an event, which is published in 1888, where he, you know, he says that basically there are these kind of like existing modes of doing philosophy. And there's three of them and he kind of goes through the three of them and he says something that he wants to sort of deviate from them, but maybe borrow a little bit from each one of the three. And so, you know, I think Coming out in 1988, that's like an auspicious moment. You have this sort of like fever pitch of the of French theory, right? And yet what Badiou's doing in being an event is very, very different from all of that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. He's not doing any sort of discursive textuality stuff, right? He's not obsessed with Saussurean semiotics. He's not trying to do phenomenology at all. Right. He does the most like repulsive thing possible, which is to defend a concept of truth. Right. Right. At the height of the moment when everyone is like finally convinced that that's impossible. You know, he says that he's a Platonist, you know, boo crowd booze. He says that he's, you know, he shows that how much he values mathematics as a way to think, um, ontology. So there's all these kind of things that make him a kind of a prickly, object to to encounter and so so yeah you know i mean maybe that's sort of where we could begin that he's trying to renew a philosophy of truth 
Mm-hmm. And to do it with a pretty intricate technical apparatus. So it's not kind of like just going off of intuition or something like that. And then, you know, he wants to, he wants to show that any, any way of speaking about ontology is going to necessarily entail a conversation about mathematics. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are some kind of the ground, the, the sort of, sort of basic stuff that we, we're trying to wrestle with in this in this podcast, which again is just a kind of close reading of volume one of, of being an event from 1988. And we bring in other voices too. You know, there's other people that we bring in in, in interview form trying to like come to terms with Badu, who I think both Andrew and I would admit, you know, we have really ambivalent feelings about. Um, sure. Andrew, do you want to add to that? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that might be startling to some people is the method that he uses, which is not equivalent to style. There's there's certainly some stylistic questions. You know, it's not a literary approach. And in fact, he um, very vociferously argues against a poetic ontology, mm-hmm. which he sort of hangs on Heidegger. And if we remember, you know, Heidegger says that truth used to be in this more sort of quizzical, go consult the oracle who's going to give you this sort of roundabout response that you have to through life or through thinking, sort of find your way through. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, truth, I can tell you what it is. It's based in an axiomatic approach of the set theoretical justification for what a number is, <laughs> which like will be very startling for some people. But also, okay, so there's all this sort of technical math stuff, which he explains a little bit, but he doesn't explain the debates behind them. He just sort of gives you his position in all of it. So that can be a little difficult if you want to understand why or how or it came to what it was. And then the other side of it is he's very much a history of ideas thinker. And so he takes big names and just like gives you his position on each one of them. Mm. And so that's part of his philosophical approach where he doesn't really think much about history. You know, he actually has these deep criticisms of historical materialism, which it's funny because his other big sort of claim to fame is he becomes popular in this dark age for Marxism around the era of the war on terror in the early 2000s, where people wouldn't even say Marx, let alone communism. And he was just proudly flying his red flag out there. And so, you know, he was opportunistically adopted by various Marxists at the time. But if you read his work carefully enough, you know, very, very big ideological partisan, but also philosophical disputes with them. You know, he's anti-state. There's this open question of what his relationship to a party might be. I mean, he does believe in organization, but there's all this. Un- and he's he's pro riot, mm. so you can imagine just like a good a good comrade probably doesn't like him that much if they read enough of it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I have some questions about his relationship to Marx, but I don't want to go too far afield. Maybe I'll let Adam jump in and get in on the action here. And it's it's good to focus on him within the sort of broader category of the history of ideas at the time, because in what's interesting is that he is really trying to invert or at least challenge one of the fundamental presuppositions of what we would know as continental philosophy, which is the person you need to read before you get to Triple H, you know, Husserl, Heidegger and Hegel, which is Kant. And what's interesting is that I, I can imagine sort of a, a reader of this saying, this is pre-critical metaphysics. This is a return to Plato. You know, this is a counter-revolution against the Copernican revolution of Kant, which is neither Copernican nor revolution. But 
And, but he says it straight up. He says, you know, the, the Kantian question, which founds the, the very idea of the transcendental, which defines so much of everything that comes after Kant, Victor, Schelling, Hegel, and therefore pretty much every debate after that. You know, the Kantian question is, how is pure mathematics possible? And he worked backwards to the nature of the subject. Whereas this is just on the, in the intro, you know, it, you know, but Dew's reversal is that given that pure mathematics is the science of being, brackets qua being, how is a subject possible? And I, I think there's something quite valuable to this insofar as it, it's, it's returning to mathematical discourses, but it's a way that returns to it as if mathematics operates on a different layer of logical time. And I guess one question I had about that was, because there is a, to put it into Lersian terms, a kind of minor tradition of mathematics, in, in particularly in France in the 20th century. And rather than thinking of, yeah, Hilbert versus Russell versus Frege, he does mention at one point Jean Cavalles, who is like the first person who I can think of who would think, okay, if, if you're going to model Badiou on someone, who are you going to model him on? And this is a, a mathematician who saw the practice of mathematics and the practice of philosophy and the practice of being in the French resistance and shooting Nazis and sadly eventually getting shot by them to be completely isomorphic. So I was wondering if you could actually just say something about sort of the history of the receptive mathematical thought in France, maybe the links of mathematics and militancy that he tries to to set up in this book. Yeah, that's something that comes up in with our interview with Knox Peden in in episode one. And he has a much stronger sense of that history, having worked on Caveas. Yeah, I mean, I was I was really taken with the first thing that you said, Adam, around around I think what you were getting at was sort of the the, the importance of intuition. Right. And mm. I think for someone like Bed you know, he really wants to get rid of that. And he's gonna replace that with axiomatics. Right. So, well, okay, you could say, well, what grounds the axiom? Okay. An axiom has to be plausible. It has to have an intuitive, you know, sort of truth to it or whatever. But, mm. but Baju really puts a strong point on it. You know, he says, like, no, no, I don't want to have an axiom that's sort of like well grounded. For, for Baju, the almost the like horrific beauty of the axiom is that it is, is it's a con, he calls it a conceptless choice, right? There's almost a kind of lingering existentialism where you have to stipulate in the absence of the capacity to, to, to stipulate. And so, yeah, that's how I would kind of frame this sort of like, where, what's the role of intuition in, in fulfilling or, or facilitating, you know, the, the, the posture of critical philosophy. And I think Badiou, yeah, wants to get rid of any lingering sense of intuition. Yeah. How do you also, oh, 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 please go ahead, Andrew, by all means. We, we also view with someone who's a scholar of German philosophy, who I think draws a much clearer line between some of these things than I ever would be able to. And that's Sarah Percio. And she's at Duke and had a background in actually learning the math, but then also now works in German philosophy and other approaches. And so this is something that she's deeply invested in. For me, as someone who doesn't really work in math and mathematics. I have no facility in choosing sides and figuring out whose debate is right or wrong. I do know that there are some really common ties between Badiou and Deleuze or other people sort of working at the time. They they like Albert Lautmann. They like Cavallez. They have some training in the sort of philosophy of science that gives people a sort of like common reference point. But obviously, they take it in very different directions. Mm. And if you want to read a good comparative piece on this, Daniel W. Smith 
from Purdue has a great comparative essay from the early 2000s that looks to math as a way of doing a comparative analysis between Deleuze and Badiou that I think is quite fruitful and a really excellent essay. And I would just add one other note. So if the question is sort of what are, what's the mathematical lineage that most influences Badiou? So, you know, your listeners might be aware that the, the particular domain of math that Badiou is most attracted to is set theory. And he goes to set theory for a variety of reasons, but I think the most important one is that it is, you know, there's competing schools of thought, I guess, but even today, I'm told that it is still more or less understood as sort of like the agreed upon system that explains the foundations of mathematics. And so within that frame, it's really the figure of Cantor, the end of the 19th century, who looms large. So Cantor's development of the technique of set theory in order to basically try to understand what infinity is. That is a huge part of what influences Badiou, and you can see it all over the text. But I would highlight one other figure, which is uh, Paul Cohen, who is maybe a lesser known mathematician who develops. So the narrative of being event is kind of like headed toward this figure of Paul Cohen. And he develops a, this series of techniques one is called forcing, and then this concept of the generic, the generic set, which is very appealing for Badiou. It's a way of describing a kind of like, I don't know what we could call it, almost like a form of, of, of unmarked multiplicity or something that can actually be constructed step by step. So I think maybe even more than the French context, it would be some of these other figures. Yeah, and he, he goes after mathematicians that are what he calls a constructive or constructivist ontology. So he doesn't like this sort of like cobbling together, which I think is much closer to what DNG might be. And so the sort of the like home run he's trying to hit is to say that being is something that needs to be overthrown, constantly overthrown. So there's this sort of theory of revolution, which is the event. And he says DNG, for instance, get stuck in being and they never get to the event. And that the event is an interruption of being but it's not a irrational, it's actually rigorously defined through set theory. And he says the subject is the part that does this. And so, you know, is he successful? Is he not? I don't know. But that's the, that's the play. Hmm. I see. It that's seems interesting. like... Oh, sorry. Oh, go for it, Adam. Go for it. I was just say, so this is one of the things we could say in which you can really find incompatibility between, say, say D&G and Adia is in a way, Badiou is, is fundamentally rejecting the mathematical paradigm, which is the very thing that bases much of what D and G do, which is insofar as he rejects constructivism, does he therefore mm. reject the basis of cybernetic explanation? And therefore, you know, it's not like D and G will pick up Batterson and Wiener. And I don't know, I'm not too sure about Riemann's relation to cybernetics. Probably doesn't have one. But, <laughs> but he, is, he, is he just fundamentally rejecting mathematical postulates which define well, not rejecting, but critiquing at least the mathematical postulates that define sort of the information economy. Because if you sort of take away the constructivist elements, do you fundamentally return to an axiomatic which doesn't rely on this kind of cybernetic modeling which get in, in Vena, people like that? Yeah, I mean, I have two thoughts about that. One is the constructivist stuff. So I think what, what but, but you would say is that, okay, well, we even know from from figures like Gödel or in a different context, Alan Turing, right? Like we, we have sort of these like, these technical proofs that show the, the, that there is an outer limit 
to, you know, discrete rationality or, or whatever. So there's that. And at the same time, I think what Peggy would say is that, okay, let's just pretend you can achieve like full constructability, right? Maybe we call that bad infinity, right? Maybe that's, that's the discrete, natural, integer-based, you know, quantized form of infinity. Okay, but let's say we even have that. Badger's response to that is that's just one kind of like level, <laughs> right? And uh, he's very much interested in Cantor's discovery of like the, the different sizes of infinity. And in fact, in his most recent book, The Eminence of Truths, the, the kind of core argument in that book, which is really wild, and I'm still trying to understand it myself, is that for Badiou, it's always about the intersection between two sort of qualitatively incompatible, like metaphysical levels, right? And so I think the, the, the constructivist stuff Ultimately, it's not that it doesn't work. It's just that it, at best, it can only give one half of this bizarre kind of dialectical ill that he thinks is necessary. It has this abyss in the middle of it. It has this, 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 it's, he always talks about like the impossibility and the, the impasse. And out of that abyss, that's where you get events. That's where you get truths. That's where you get subjects. So there's that. And then the other thought is like, you know, let's not forget, what was the math that Deleuze loved? It was a calculus, which is the mathematics mm -hmm. of, of continuity and infinitesimals, right? And I think that points to a kind of, that tradition of the continuous in philosophy. Badiou's on the other side, you know? He's, a, he's, a, he's an arithmetical guy. He's interested in, in number, you know? And, and so to the extent that math has that kind of Rivening in the heart of it. I don't think Baidu is like a partisan of 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 arithmetic, but he's certainly that's where his heart lies. And I would say Deleuze is a is a partisan of continuous. <laughs> and I would I Absolutely. would just tack on really quickly too that you know he's expressing the prejudices of a pure mathematician who thinks that it's vulgar to even look at the empirical world. <laughs> yeah. Not interested in applied math, and and in fact, set theory and number theory is about as far as you can get from the real world as possible. And so, you know, that just puts him at loggerheads with all these other approaches. Like DNG, their their whole critique of Lacan is like, you're still not looking at the real, you know, let's go to the real. The real's actually there. We can look at it. And for them, it's a sort of like weird empiricism, right? But like they're actually dealing with stuffness. So it means Badiou, not only is he not dealing with these sort of cybernetic approaches, which he would think are too applied and are closer to engineering than they are to math. But he doesn't even look to political economy because that's too vulgar for him. So his like critique of capitalism or whatever is based in pure math, even more than like a theoretical physicist would have. Yeah. And so it's it's quite bizarre. Yeah. So, Adam, it's a great question. Like we didn't tackle the cybernetics question, which is a crucial one. But we did sort of toy with the with a, an adjacent question, which is, why does Badiou never talk about computers? Right. This is a guy who's obsessed with mathematics, and he's actually pretty good at math. Mm. Right. He's not doing original research in math. Okay, whatever. But he's pretty good at it, and yet he never talks about the digital, never talks about computation. So maybe it's a kind of an absence in in his work. And I think Andrew is hinting at reasons why. You know, he's more on the sort of pure pure math side rather than the applied. Maybe it's an old dog new tricks thing, right? Like he didn't grow up with computers. 
or maybe there's some more a more nuanced explanation. I mean, what is it? Page 100, 150, we finally get our first concrete case in the book, and it's yeah. about an undocumented immigrant family. And there are a few more that kind of show up. That's his marquee example, though, because it happens two or three times. Oh, wow. So much, you know. But but in that way, maybe, you know, your listeners are probably pretty familiar with Ranciere because he's a lot closer to Deleuze and Deleuze's metaphysics. Well, there's a lot of ways in which Ranciere is really trying to bridge Badiou and Deleuze and all these questions, the part that has no part and sort of the unrepresentability or the fact that we know something's there, but the state is refusing to recognize it. Like these are all the sort of political problems that Badiou is ultimately interested in, but that, you know, kind of show up in the margins of the book, as it were, because he's so interested in trying to do a sort of pure metaphysics here. It's interesting because, I mean, this is my second encounter with the book, and I can't say that I've retained anything meaningful from my first encounter with it. But the questions and the point of view that I approach this book with might be familiar to a lot of my listeners, or our listeners, I should say. You know, we have Deleuze, but I'm also thinking in terms of a lot of the way that philosophy of math is handled in analytic philosophy. And I'm thinking particularly of the figures of, you know, like Heidegger here, who is run up. But it, it almost seems as if Badiou's taking a position on poetry or, you know, sort of poetic ontologies mm-hmm. that are familiar to criticisms leveled at Heidegger through Carnap and figures in, in the analytic, the tradition of analytic philosophy. And so I, I was wondering, how, how does Badiou assert a theory of mathematical ontology that he believes circumvents the, the creative power behind more poetic concepts? or maybe any concepts at all. And, and this is the thing. I, I like to encounter these texts and, and sort of take on a new mind and a novel approach, but it, it's hard to get around the idea that he's attempting to ground the, the truth of mathematical ontology almost prior to any sort of philosophical investigation, which is something that after years of Nietzsche and Deleuze, I have a complete allergy towards. Mm-hmm. But would you say then he he's aligned with logical positivism in this case? Or How might his theory differ from them in that sense? I think a little historical work would start answering the question, and then maybe Alex can give the more sort of philosophical response. So as many of your listeners might know, there's this sort of Lacanian moment in which Lacanians start getting interested in a mathematic approach, right? There's some Frege there, there's some other stuff, and it's sort of very specifically comes through like to American or English readers through Jacques-Alain Miller's Suture, which I think is is strong for people. And what's interesting is Badiou was kind of on the margins with that. There was a journal that was being published in this sort of like 60s Marxist radicalism moment, the Cahiers pour Marxist-Leninist, I think. So like a Marxist-Leninism journal. And then there's a sort of offshoot of even a smaller sort of cadre, which are the cahier pour analyse, l'analyse, the, so the analysts, the psychoanalysts. So they're, you know, kind of like Marxist analysts and they're sort of post-Althusarian working in kind of some Lacan stuff or whatever. And so they start messing around with math themes. And then eventually someone's like, oh, this bad you guy, he like actually knows math. He's not just sort of like reading and playing around with it. And so there are some debates that happen in the cahier journal in which Badiou's really sort of coming in and sort of setting the foundation for a mathematical approach to Lacan. 
And so if we had to sort of like define Badiou in just a couple words, I would say he's Lacan beyond Lacan. In the way in which Lacan and Lacanian analysis just tries to focus exclusively on the subject and give this sort of very structural account on the subject, and Matthews help found who the subject is, Badiou very openly admits that he's trying to take that framework and all of philosophy. So what, what Lacan does to the subject, Badiou is doing to all of metaphysics. Mm-hmm. And so in that, the role of math is to help both set the ground, but also have a rigorous definition of its interruption through a sort of political event. Though it is a little funny that it takes two decades from May 68 to finally get this treatise. And so, you know, there's a lot of smaller things just sort of littered around. But, you know, maybe Alex has a much more like actual smart approach rather than me just trying to draw these sort of tendential contingent historical connections. Yeah, no, I mean, Craig, I, I, I similarly have a kind of like ambivalence or, or allergy is maybe how you put it. And, and, you know, because I, you know, I, I'm a materialist. I, you know, I'm imprinted by that kind of Deleuzean version of materialism as well. But the one opening gesture that is, that is crucial in understanding the book being an event is that Badiou wants to deny the one. Okay. So he says there's this noble tradition in Parmenides, it's in all these other figures. But isn't it interesting that, you know, it seems like no one really ever had the guts to actually just, instead of asserting the one at the sort of, you know, kind of, I don't know, foundation of ontology or whatever, to actually just deny it. So I think that's a window into why phenomenology is totally going to not be a path for Bedu. It's also, I think, a, a, a window into why Badiou has such strong skepticism toward the Spinoza tradition, the vitalism tradition, the Deleuze tradition, right? And he has this really compelling line where he says, like what Andrew just pointed out, the, the alternative between the poem and the mathem, right? And he says, the Greeks did not invent the poem, rather they interrupted the poem with the mathem. And so he sees that, that, that interruption, you know, what's the narrative there? Well, it's like, I don't know, the poem is the kind of, the, the kind of mystical, like oratic basis or past or something. And that has to be broken from. So this ended up being a big theme for us in the podcast is, is, and I think at one point we basically said like, well, you know, Badiou's basically a modernist, you know, he's a political modernist. Like everything he thinks is about something only has value to the extent that it that it is the result of a break right that's what i mean by a kind of modernist posture or political modernist posture and i think that's really evident in this this notion of sort of you have to interrupt the poem and what interrupts it the mathem a little kind of mathematical abstract relationship so yeah it's hard for me to always you know really give a bear hug to all that stuff you know <laughs> the 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 joke sometimes i i i I, the, the way I kind of put it in a humorous way is, you know, the old line about, you know, Marx's old line about how Hegel is, is standing on his head and, and it's, it's our job to put him back on his feet again. And sometimes I, I really have a similar thought about Bedu. You know, there's a lot of stuff I like in there, but I wonder, I wonder mm-hmm. if somewhere out there or somewhere in the future, there is a, a kind of opposite world materialist version of Bedu. And maybe it's our job Maybe Badgie's standing on his head, and maybe it's our job to put his feet back on the ground. Hmm. Interesting. Adam, do you have something? 
Yeah, actually, I wanted to get into this critique of the one a little bit, particularly because this this idea of the real, which he he says is kind of isomorphic from Lacan, is that the real is the impasse of formalization until at least for at least for ontology, because he says yeah the idea that mathematics is ontology is not an ontological statement but a meta ontological one about ontology and also why ontologists have such an impasse with it because. For, for the ontologist who's like, I mean, he basically means Heidegger. I'm surprised he doesn't just say Derrida at this point. Like, he's like the return of Kant. He talks about Heidegger. I'm like, just, just name the antagonism, man. Just come on. But it's, it, the idea that the, the real is some sort of impossible formalization leads him to just jump into set theory in which he has to talk about being qua being only in terms of this idea of a pure multiple. Now, I, I'm not sure what a pure multiple is, but maybe, maybe you can correct. Is, is the pure multiple the idea, going back to set theory, that fundamentally every set contains at least one set other than itself, which is the null set? In every set of elements A, B, C, for example, the null set is also included as an element in that set. And is this where set theory is invoked by Badiou to kind of be the, 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 the rectifying formal element at least, where at the very at the very beginning of any being for a set, the being of any elements, there is at least a set which has itself as a subset of itself, and therefore at least two things. There might be an bad infinite regress possibly in that formulation, but I'm just wondering how we how we consider this idea of pure multiple in light of the, the set theoretical tools he's using. Yeah, and this was this was kind of a, a I went you know I first read being an event I don't know maybe in the 2000s or something and. I had completely forgotten how important the notion of the multiple is for, for Badiou until we, you know, went back and looked at it again. And we had these weird moments where we're like, well, maybe there is a Deleuze Badiou connection, you know, around this question of multiplicity or something. But I think for Badiou, the, the pure multiple is interesting to him because it's a way, and he's, and apparently this is the same in set theory, but it's a way to sort of bring together disparate things while still preserving that their mutual heterogeneity. So the idea behind a set is that there's no sort of like, like, you know, kind of controlling logic or identity requirement that you then would sort of like superimpose and then everything would sort of fall under the, the shadow of that, right? Instead, the notion of a set is sort of like the flimsiest of all concepts or the flimsiest of all forms of connection. And this is part of what we were saying a second ago about Baidu denying the one, right? Like if a set then asserted its synthetic wholeness, well, then we'd back, be back to like an idea of, of the one or something. And so Baidu's always going to reject that. And instead, he, he uses this expression to count as one, to count as one. And so things can be nominated. You can give something a proper name right? You can call it a proper name. And that can be a kind of provisional unifying or, or oneness. But Badiou will always insist that, first of all, it's an activity, it's an operation, it's a count, something that is actively done, right? And then even if there is a kind of oneness, it's incredibly thin and it's, it's very provisional, almost even just kind of pragmatic and, 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 and strategic or tactical. And it's really the, the mutual difference or heterogeneity of all of the things assembled in the set that really excites 
Maybe one thing that we can do too is just back up a little bit to talk about like what is set theory, where does it come from, and can what are the problems that it's trying to address, and why it might be appealing to someone like Bedu. So, I guess it's assumed that you know I'm not a historian of math, nor am I a mathematician, but my understanding is that people more or less take for granted for a very long time that a number is a number, particularly counting numbers. One, two, three, four. And people felt that they had a decent basis for those sorts of numbers. And then there are questions about the actual status of other numbers. So, you know, we can have fractions and people are pretty confident with that, or even like the square root of two or something like that. But then once it gets a little bit more complicated with irrational numbers, then they're really mm, not sure if there's a firm basis for it. And then Cantor comes around and he's like, well, actually, if we do a few technical operations and, you know, we could walk you through it, I'd probably get some of the elements wrong, but involves taking a number line from, let's say, zero to one or one to two, and then sort of trying to talk about the difference between them. And then you cut it in half, then, then another of the difference between it. And then there's sort of like trying to find all the numbers in between them. You're just going to keep on coming up with more and more numbers. And so he's like, oh, man. There's actually an infinite amount of space between even just two counting numbers, zero and one and one and two. And so, you know, how do we even deal with that there's an infinite amount of numbers out there? You know, some mathematicians come around and say, ah, oh, that's just a fake problem. Who even really cares? And in fact, it seems like most mathematicians who do something that is applied or needs calculation, like are taught this once, maybe as an undergrad, maybe they'll take a week or two on it in grad school. But unless it's your specialty, they just throw it away and say, okay, you know, someone addressed that problem a while ago. It really isn't relevant. You know, it's maybe in the large sphere of what's called mathematics, but these foundational problems don't really affect the way in which I do the form of math that I do. And so, like, this attempt to establish what really is the basis, why we can even do other forms of math is considered, like, really weird. And the mathematicians who dedicate themselves to it are considered maybe not outsiders, but dealing with problems that aren't, you know, terribly relevant to other people. And so it's funny that Badiou goes to this, to mathematicians. Like we interview a, a, a philosophy of, of math person in our final episode. And he's like, what's weird is like, why does Badiou go to number or set theory? Like who even cares about this stuff that much? Like, of course we know it, we debate about it sometimes, but it's like totally weird. But for Badiou, I think it has this, political purpose. Like Alex said, it's a way of creating a shallow definition of what exists. He also associates it with the state. And so in, in many ways, being an event is an anti-state book more than it's an anti-capitalist book. And he's maintaining his sort of Marxist and communist orientation, but he takes pot shots at socialists. He takes pot shots at Republicans. He has nothing nice to say about democracy. Because he says all those people are interested in is counting and calculation, running the numbers, all these other things. So even if he's a mathematician, he's not a mathematician who's interested in calculation. And actually, he looks down his nose at all those people and thinks that actually there's a philosophical and political problem for people who do too much of it. So anyway, I don't, I don't know if that helps address sort of the larger framework behind it. But in that way, I think he's coming to similar conclusions, but through different methods than DNG as well. Yeah, that that's that's interesting. That takes me on to the segment of this program where I want to 
create a provocation of sorts okay. politically. Not only using Deleuze, but also using Marx, juxt juxtaposing Badiou to Marx as well. And by chance, I had encountered this quote from Marx today. And, and then I have a quote here from The Communist Hypothesis. And I, I, I hope you can see how very different I, I perceive them. Marx says, the chief defect of all hitherto existing materialism, that of Feuerbach included, is that the thing, reality, sensuousness, is conceived only in the form of the object or of contemplation, but not as sensuous human activity practice, not mm -hmm. subjectively. Badiou says, the ideological operation of the idea of communism is the imaginary projection of political reality in the symbolic function of history, including in the form of a representation of the action of the countless masses by the one of a proper name. The function of this idea is to support the individual incorporation into the discipline of a procedure of truth, to authorize in his own eyes the individual to exceed the state constraints of survival by becoming a part of the body of truth or subjectivable body. And I'm curious where, see, th this is, and maybe I should have brought more math back into this because I almost wanted to ask, what is counting? What is counting in the sense of like, is there not a phenomenological dimension to math that makes it intelligible to a particular kind of mm. subject? What is a number? What kind of object is it? Is it a real object? Is it, is it a fictional object? Now, against, you know, the, the sort of juxtaposition of Marx and Badiou here, what is the role of the sensuous human activity, the practice, either, you know, becoming a subject or the process of desubjectivation? What, what does Badiou see as the, the sort of leverage point to, to actualize the, the, the political goals he has, you know, it, it, with respect to his elevation of the, the idea in the, in the sort of platonic sense of things? Yeah, I mean, I think the first short response is nothing. <laughs> I, I think that he sees himself as a rationalist following in the sort of geometric tradition yeah. that's anti-empirical. And so maybe that does put him at loggerheads with a certain version of Marx that's, you know, you read Capital One and it's full of muscles being torn and blood and like all of these very like deep material sort of questions about the violence of capital and what it's doing to people. Mm. And in that way, you know, being an event in particular is like bloodless. It's just mm. like there's nothing there for anyone interested in the sensuous. For Deleuze, I'd add, I mean, just because we're on Acid Horizon, yeah. you know, for him, empiricism is the opposite. Like empiricism also is not about counting. It's not about just like pointing to things and that sort of thing. It's this like horrifying experience. He calls it the cruelty of ontology mm. in which the world is constantly confronting you with things that's totally busting your mind wide open. And that's where the question of, you know, difference really matters for him, I think. Mm. You know, this is where I really love, I always mispronounce his name, Zorobitchvili's reading of Deleuze, in which he says, the event in Deleuze comes when something no longer resembles itself. Mm, mm. And that's the operation of difference and differentiation. Right. And mm. it's not just the simple expansion. It's actually the break from what it was before. So I think there's this modernist political element you get in Deleuze as well, but it happens through an encounter with the empirical or encounter with the real. Whereas for Badiou, you're asking the right question, where does the event come from? 
He tries to rigorously define it through set theory in this much more rationalist operation, but also the sort of like four truth procedures. So maybe that's, mm-hmm. you know, Alex is really good on explaining the truth procedure. So maybe that's one, one thing that he should work through. So I'll, I'll throw it to him. Yeah, we could, we could definitely talk about the truth procedures, which, you know, interestingly, I think actually makes another bridge back to Deleuze and to Deleuze and Qatari. The, you know, your listeners might be aware of the way in which Bedu plays a, a, a minor, but I think important role in the late Deleuze and Qatari book, What is Philosophy? Right. So there's a kind of couple page insert maybe where they, where they do a, a, a read of being an event, which is startling, right? Like, you know, who, who was paying attention to that book at the time? Well, Deleuze definitely was. Deleuze was so concerned <laughs> by this book that he felt like he had to sort of address the question of Bedu. And even, you know, even the, the macro structure of, of that book, I'm just remembering this, you know, the master, the, the, the macro structure of that book. What is it? It's like science, logic. There's sort of like three main headings in. Philosophy, science, and art. Yeah. And, and that I think it, it, I can't help but hear a kind of echo of the four truth procedures that bad, bad you puts out, you know, art, science, politics, and love. Right. Right. So, so yeah. So maybe there is a kind of link back, back to Deleuze, but back to the question of Marx and the political question. I can't help but read this quote that I love, which is from a, from a letter Gita, written by Gita Borg, of all people. This is a Gita Ward letter in 1982, where he he's he's writing to a friend who had just given Debord the review that Badu had written about Debord's uh, film, the Injirum film. And so this is this is Debord writing to his friend having ha- after having been give, given this little review. He says, "Ah, without you, I would surely have missed, overlooked these latest affronteries from Badu the Maoist." And too bad he hasn't been picked up with the rest of the track. All of those critics I intend to crush. I say he's the worst of them all. What does he want us to believe? That we made the long march together? Okay. So I think that, you know, we have to be clear that there is a stern rejection of, of, of Badju's posture, frankly, also of the, the sort of embrace of Chinese Maoism, the flirtation with Chinese Maoism in France, particularly in the early 1970s, which really you see all over the place. It's in the Telkel group with people like Philippe Solers. I mean, good God, it's even in, you know, Jean-Luc Godard and in a million other people. So, so no, I think this is a complicated history and, and, you know, certainly, you know, Bedu has a kind of axiomatic you know, you, you mentioned the, the communist hypothesis. And I think what's so weird about that is you might think like, oh, it's a communist hypothesis, meaning at some point the the hypothesis will become like a actually existing utopia or whatever. But I think for Badiou, it's actually the hypothesis is the good part, right? The fact that it is a hypothesis means that it is sort of like safely within the realm of a kind of of, of a mathematical formulation. And he's actually drawn to that rather than drawn to, and I love that, that Mark's quote you read, you know, ra- rather than drawn to some form of sensuous human activity. Yeah. So for a lot of people on the left, that's, that's a, that's a bridge too far, right? Like that's a deal. <laughs> sure. Adam, do you have anything? Well, to, to counterpose the Marxist question with an anarchist question, I just, I just wanted to ask something about 
one of the relation between the mathematical operations that he talks about and the political operations, which of course appear in, in especially in Andrew, in your work, which is subtraction. Mm-hmm. The idea that mathematical ontology is, is subtracts from presence, whereas the sort of ontology of like poetry is always trying to throw itself into this excess of presence, be totally wowed by, you know, the clearing of being and all that sort of shit, you know. But, uh, but <laughs> so what, what is the, because I've, I've only ever known really sort of anarchists who have read with you. I don't know many Marxists who read him, which is a shame really, because most of his good Marxist communist stuff is actually in his plays. It's in his plays. Mm-hmm. And also, weirdly, if anyone's, if listeners, if you want to pick up like a really nice intro to Badu book, pick up his book of obituaries. It's it's actually really pleasant. It's called Pocket Pantheon. He gives obituaries for all all of your favorite writers. But yeah, the question I had is sort of what what sort of influence do you think Badu has had on development of anarchism, particularly on this idea of subtraction, with the idea of you know, de or which may or may not be tied to other sort of Marxist parallels like delinking, Samira Min's idea of delinking, but also of course the growing theories of destituent power. And refounding the anarchist gesture is not one of trying to realize something which, yes, is a hypothesis, but actually is constituted by refusing the presence that, mm-hmm. say, certain Marxists would say, actually, we need to realize this hypothesis, make it the thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And that's not because it's true, because that's how most of them read Hegel. But, you know, it's, <laughs> but yeah, how, what is, what is the relationship to, of subtraction? to the constituent gesture at the heart of politics and particularly revolutionary mm. politics as, as it was hitherto conceived. Yeah, you know, Bedieu is, I think there's a contemporary framework now that you see a lot where the logic of, I don't know, any kind of like progressive, you know, hopeful utopian scenario, whatever, comes out of like, I don't know, the uncontainability of the human or or something is inscrutable or or there is a kind of like, fugitivity to life or, you know, there's lots of different ways of, 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 of expressing this. And, you know, I mean, I kind of, you know, like my face went, 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 went white at this moment in, in being an event where there's a moment where Badiou basically says like, yeah, there's something that is absolutely excessive, absolutely larger, and it's the state. <laughs> so he kind of inverts the situation, right? That, that the state is sort of absolutely larger than the situation. So it seems kind of insurmountable and, and this kind of totalitarian image or whatever. But he uses that to go exactly where you just suggested, what you just brought up, Adam, this question of the subtractive, right? And so if, if something, you know, if the event arises or appears out of the state of the situation, it's not because it's like bigger or more powerful or more inscrutable or more uncontrollable. It's almost the opposite. It's that sort of piece by piece, step by step, every characteristic of the state gets sort of undone and subtracted from. This is why he loves Paul Cohen's method, because it's this like way to step by step, absolutely extricate yourself from any given legible form, right? And that's what the generic is. So yeah, I actually like that a lot about Badiou. There's almost a kind of like lingering nihilistic impulse in that, I think, right? Totally opposite from Deleuze, right? Like there's no affirmation, except maybe afterwards, right? The event can be very rejuvenating and affirming, but it doesn't come from a fundamentally kind of vitalist expressive mode. And so, yeah, I'm sure we can make nice connections with, I don't know, the notion of degrowth or things like that. But yeah, Badiou... 
ex, you know, embraces the negative, he embraces the subtractive, and that's the fundamental mechanism that you follow in order to have this abyss open up, have the event happen, have the subject have any relationship to truth. Maybe I'd tell the, you know, listeners at home, just flip to page 110 of being an event. That first full paragraph, dot, 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 dot. Okay. Politics can be defined therein as an assault against the state. An assault to mobilize the singular multiples against the normal multiples, arguing that excrescence is intolerable. An excrescence is that which exists but is not recognized. I mean, that's a Hegelian term, but you know that'll just be the way in which people understand it. And he then says, the state as such, however, and this is maybe what separates him from some anarchists, cannot be easily attacked or destroyed. So even if the route of political change is always bordered by the state, cannot in any way let itself be guided by the state for the state is precisely non-political insofar as that it cannot change save hands and is well known that there is little strategic signification in such a change. So he's a hater. He's a state. Oops, I think you went muted. Yeah, and he, but he says the same thing about nature too, which is wild, right? So nature for Badiou is state-like in the sense that it, 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 it's merely a, a form of like rote repetition. And it's, and, and so maybe this is a way to see a kind of strong anti-essentialism or a strong kind of anarchist impulse or something where he's against the state and he's also against nature. Yeah, he's a, he's a thinker of militant refusal where he says, never allow the state, where he's just like, you don't appeal to the state. You don't ask the state to do things on your behalf. Or if you do, you just always say it's not good enough, which I guess in some ways might make him allies to someone like Simon Critchley's infinite demanding or mm -hmm. infinitely demanding where you pose demands to the state, but then just always keep saying, do more, do more, do more. But for him, I think he also sees some operation going on outside of it. And of course, like you said, with destitution, for him, there are these questions of can one constitute a new people, a new politics, that sort of thing. I think his defense of it in the book is actually quite weak. He goes into this sort of question of the constituent assemblies in the French Revolution and makes this sort of kind of Rousseauian case. And when I was reading it, I was just like, this is so bizarre. It's going against everything else that he's talked about in the book. And so, you know, if we had a dark Deleuze, I also want there to be a sort of like anarcho view or maybe like an emo badu or something where he's just like, <laughs> nothing will make me happy. Right. And Goff bed you. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to ask you. You took the words out of my mouth. I, I, because the existence of Dark Deleuze presupposed the existence of a bad bed you. Like, <laughs> and, and, and maybe this is a good way to wrap up because it, at the very top of the episode, you talked about the ways in which, you know, you're reading through being an event and now through imminence of truths. What are the intimations of perhaps a more affirmative bad you, or I don't know, where, where are the, the sort of lines of intersections with someone like Deleuze or Laruelle or maybe even a Foucault? I mean, I can just say one or two things. I think the, you know, why, why read bad you reading bad you in 2023 is even somewhat anachronistic. I think, you know, like mm. the, 
the the moment of Bedu reception really was in the 2000s, you might say. What does Bedu mean mean today? And for me, the most, the biggest appeal, it's not the math stuff, right? It's not, it's certainly not the idealism. For me, the big appeal is the theory of the political, you know? And so I would say for listeners, you know, I, I'm drawn to ethical thinking and, you know, I've been, you know, marked by the ethical turn, but I think Bedu is very much on the record that he wants to resist that, that path. And so I find that really exciting and invigorating as a kind of, return to, in many ways, it's a, it's a classic kind of traditional posture, right? That has deep, deep roots in, in Western metaphysics. And Bedu is willing to kind of just go back to that traditional posture and insist on how radical it is. What do you Absolutely. think? Yeah. I mean, I think we've already mentioned one, if not two of the big ideas that we might sort of find some convergence with my previous approaches, which is one, this politics of subtraction, sort of communist subtraction, as it were. Uh, second is thinking about the state. And here, you know, actually, maybe the first time I was generally interested in Badu was when I was reading, I think it was Tikkun, in which they talked about the state as prevent. Okay. And it could have been a Schmidt reference. I mean, they didn't reference anything, right? So I had to like figure out where the reference from. Could be a Schmidt thing. Because in Schmidt and Nomos, the Earth says the sort of the jus publicum europium works as a catacomb to prevent the arrival of, you know, what revolution, apocalypse, Satan, whatever. And I was like, okay, but maybe it's actually Badieu and that his definition of the state is that the state is prevention or more expanded form. The state, the state's main operation is to prevent the event. Right. Warding off. Yeah. And that has a nice sort of resonance with some of the DNG stuff about, which is on the inverse about like nomad societies anticipating and warding off the state themselves. So it's sort of like the inverse of that, I guess. Sure. And then whilst to read Badiou, mm, I think it's time for a sort of like fresh take on him. You know, yeah. we got this sort of like first wave of reception. I think it was people who were sort of like good comrades and they're people that I like and that I read. You know, we have one of them on the show, Nick Nesbitt, who's done really wonderful book work connecting Badger to Caribbean politics, like mm -hmm. the Haitian Revolution. So I think that's really important. But I think it's time to sort of like figure out where else it can go. His his own practical political work I know has included working with the sans papier, you know, undocumented immigrant peoples. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering like what would be the the new militant sort of Badouians. But of course I can never join a party or call my acolyte of anybody. So, you know. Maybe he still demands too much fidelity because that's that's a word I'm just kind of allergic to. <laughs> Got it. Well, before we wrap up, would both of you mind sharing like some projects that you're working on now and maybe what is it that you're looking at for the next year or so? Yeah, I mean, you know, so we we've been working on this this Bedu podcast for for gosh, it's been a while. It's been almost a year and a half, maybe, and we've been very slow. So that's kind of wrapping up. Most of the stuff I'm working on now is to just try to collide the the kind of critical theory continental philosophy tradition with theories of the digital. Just mm. try to return to you know, you asked about number, and I am I'm like sitting on my hands over here, but trying to sort of understand. I don't think we really have good good theories of the digital, in fact, which is, mm. seems kind of odd, but so that's really where all my energies are these days. Great. And Andrew, how about you? Yeah. So this 
podcast is just taking some work and we'll see where it goes. I work with a film collective called The Destructionist International. We mm. came out with a film called Machines in Flames, which is about a group that bombed computers in the 80s. We're working on a sort of release strategy, but right now we're doing sort of independent screenings and we don't charge money. So if you hear this and this sort of sounds interesting, you know, look up Machines in Flames, email us. We'll help you do a screening somewhere. That, that group, we're going to do a couple more projects. I'll, te I'll tease them. One of them is a shorter piece on the sort of remnants, the material traces of the George Floyd rebellion in Minneapolis itself and art washing and surveillance as it was used. And our larger pieces were interested in female political bank robbers. So we haven't figured out what form that's going to take, but it's going to go somewhere. I don't know if this is ever going to go anywhere, but I recently just made a comic book version of the introduction to my The Liz book using AI. And it's in a sort of like dark comic, like Batman meets, I don't know, the dark crypt sort of style. Okay. I've been working a lot on critical cybernetics. So that's a sort of book project on the side. But really my, my main focus right now is a manuscript that goes through the long history of Archie, which is to say the commandment mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, basic foundation of like state authority mm. that I think has been too trapped in a sort of political framework, like a political theory, political science framework. And so it goes and finds hidden structuralists, comparative mythology. It goes into Dumazil's Mitra Varuna, but it also goes all the way through time through the social physics of someone like uh, Alphonse Quetelet and his sort of statistical approach, Louis the Fourteenth. I don't know, everything in between. So hopefully that's not too much, but. Yeah, got a lot of well, and archaeology. <laughs> yeah, and archaeology. Yes, yeah. Well, because I mean, you all had on Katrin Malibu, mm -hmm. who she's working through a lot of the same sources, but she sort oh, yeah. of keeps mining the sort of Heideggerian route, and it's the one that I don't like as much. And so for me, I take it. I mean, I begin there, but then I take it out of the philosophy and move into the sort of like cultural artifacts and the mythology and all the other side of it. Great. I just want to thank both of you for coming on the show. This is excellent. We're going to direct folks to your podcast. And we were very happy to have two heavyweights on at the same time to discuss Bad Bad to You. I might title the episode that. So get get ready, get ready for that. Also, Lan, if you're listening, for God's sake, get onto the computer. <laughs> <laughs>